0: Okay, well, let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 5.11-14. through 14. For 10 months, today is our 10-month anniversary, praise the Lord, which means we're about 45 or 44 weeks old. We thank God for that. One thing I neglected to say is that God has brought us a first-time visitor every single week and that the church has been in existence. It's not a goal that we had or something we're trying to manipulate, but it's just an amazing testimony of God's faithfulness to us. But we have been studying Ephesians since week one learning the basics of Christianity, the basics of church life. And this book has been very helpful in doing that. In Sam's prayer, he said, ask God to soften our stubborn hearts. Or your stubborn hearts, I just want you to know, I've got a stubborn heart too. And I I need that same prayer for me. So as I study God's Word to prepare, there are many things in Scripture that I don't like or offend me or shame me. And my prayer is that God would soften my stubborn heart as well and that I would be taught and grow as I studied the Scriptures as well. But it's the work of His Spirit that does that. So we're dependent upon His Spirit ultimately if you're a Christian inside you so you can receive the Word of God and then externally as the Holy Spirit convicts us and opens our eyes. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians 5:11 through 14. We're in a section of Scripture where Paul has been emphasizing that if you are a professing Christian, then you need to live like a Christian. Pretty simple. You can't live like the world. If you're a Christian and you live like the world, you are a hypocrite and you are a lousy testimony for Jesus Christ. That's kind of his theme here. So he's making these very stark contrasts. If you're a Christian, then live like one. And Paul said, if you're a Christian, you are light. You used to be darkness and God has made you light forgiven you sin, given you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, adopted you into the family of God who is light. So if you're a Christian... You are light, so you need to live like light. And the last couple of weeks, we emphasized the positive side of what it means to be light. There's a positive side of being light as a Christian, and there's a negative side of being light. The positive side of being light was it's in its offensive, not offensive, but we're on the offense. It's a good thing. And the positive side of being light in this world is bearing good fruit... So that unbelievers could see that and give glory to God. That's a good thing, bearing good fruit. And he named what those attributes were of good fruit. And also the positive side of living as light in the world is the greatest positive we have to contribute to the world is giving evidence of the light of the gospel, going around and planting seeds of the gospel because the gospel is light. It's the greatest source of light. It is liberating truth. The gospel means good news. So as a Christian, that's what we need to be doing positively. Today, Paul emphasizes the negative side of being light. Because there is a negative side. There's a defensive component to the Christian life that we need to implement, and that's what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 5, 11 through 14. And the theme, that's why he called it oppose and expose. Christians should be about the business of not just offensive light, giving truth, bearing fruit, but defensive light, opposing and exposing. Follow along as I read Ephesians 5, through 14 where Paul tells Christians to do the following. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. That's the key word right there in the passage today. Expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them, sinners, sinful people, in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So, Christian, we need to be about the business of opposing and exposing. Now, when I was in college, actually, I went to the Master's College for a while, graduated, went to the Master's Seminary, and at least my for a couple of years, I was a security guard at the Master's College on the college campus. That was a rough job. It was a scary job. It was tough. Um, I wore a uniform. I had a badge. They did not give me a gun. Uh, unlike Barney Fife, they didn't even give me a bullet to put in my pocket. It's like, well, how do I defend myself? Well, I had a flashlight. That's it. I had a flashlight to defend myself. It was a big flashlight. It was about yay long. So I used that for everything to protect myself, to defend myself, to ward off vicious, scary uh, college students who were prowling around at 3 in the morning. What in the world are they doing at 3 in the morning on the college campus? I don't know. Doing Catching up on homework, I guess. But... That's all I had, so I used that light, the flashlight. It was my only tool, but I used it offensively and defensively. Uh, as light, uh, it would show me the way to get to the dorms that I had to lock up at night and light up my path and show me, uh, allow me to do the things that I needed to do. But I also used it defensively to expose. Freeze! You in the bushes? What are you doing? Another, another prank. That's what college students do. But anyway, so that's what we use light for. Offensively, for good things, defensively, to expose and oppose and defend. So that's what we're talking about here. We need to oppose and expose. And like I said in this passage, the key word or phrase that I want you to grab onto, Christian, and it's a command, is in verse 11, expose them. Instead, expose them. So oppose and expose, Christian. It needs to be a part of your Christian life. I don't know if you've heard of the word apologetics. Apologetics. It's in 1 Peter 3. Um, It's in Philippians chapter 1 and a couple other places. But it's a command to all Christians that all Christians, all believers, need to be in the uh, ministry of apologetics. And all it means is is to defend the faith. We need to defend the faith. Jude 3 says we need to guard and protect the faith as Christians that was entrusted to us by Christ. So every Christian is an apologist. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, you're an apologist. And you should be involved in apologetics. It's not just for the elite, for the PhDs, for the philosophers in Christianity. It is for every Christian. And so this is a part of apologetics, defending the faith. And, and with that comes being light to oppose and expose that which is sinful and evil. And that's what Paul says. And I just came up with five principles of how Christians can oppose and expose sin and darkness in the world. So let's learn from Paul and just see if we can apply first of all, learn these five principles and then try to apply them to our life. So the first principle I want to get here is from the beginning of verse eleven, where Paul continues on with his discussion here about being light. In verse eleven he continues his thought and he says, And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And he just said what those unfruitful deeds were. Uh, verse if you go back chapter four, verse twenty five, what are these unfruitful deeds? Paul wants us to have nothing to do with No affiliation. No partnership with. Don't share with anybody who does these things. Don't have sympathy towards these things. This shouldn't be a part of your lifestyle. This should not be a part of your worldview. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, just to summarize. Chapter 4, verse 25. These are the things he doesn't want us to have anything to do with. Falsehood, in verse 25. Stealing, in verse 28. Verse 29. Unwholesome words, or unedifying words. Verse 31. Bitterness. Wrath, anger, that's illegitimate. Clamor, that's fighting, squabbling. Slander, that's maligning people and gossip. Have nothing to do with it. Malice, at the end of verse 31. He goes on, verse 3. Immorality, that's pornea, That's just every conceivable kind of illegitimate sexual activity. Immorality, verse 3. Impurity. Greed materialism, coveting, all that stuff. Verse 4, filthiness in talk, crude jokes, crudity. That reigns supreme in Hollywood humor, doesn't it? Crudity, silly talk, coarse jesting, verse 5, coveting, idolatry, verse 6, deception. This is just a reminder of all the stuff he just talked about. And now he's saying in verse 11, Christian, do not participate in these unfruitful deeds. Have nothing to do with them. Be purposeful, systematic, Distance yourself from it. It should not be a regular part of your lifestyle, Christian. Okay. So Paul's first point there, number one, is that Christians need to take a stand against evil. is his main point. Christian, purpose in your mind to take a stand against these evil things that he just talked about. Take a stand. You need to be courageous to take a stand, don't you? And you need God's help sometimes to be courageous to take a stand. It's easy to just be passive and do nothing, right? We know that. That's human nature, to be protective. We don't want to get in trouble. We don't want to create a scene. So I'm not going to stand against the tide. I'm not going to resist. But we need to take a stand. Taking a stand against the deeds of darkness means that we need to establish clear boundaries. Establish clear boundaries. Live within those boundaries. Holy boundaries. Draw a line. Draw a line in the sand. Have clear convictions about how far you're not going to go. I refuse to cross that line of compromise. The Bible even says to avoid the appearance of evil not just avoiding evil, but avoiding the appearance of evil, which will keep you safe. Have specific convictions as a Christian and stick to those convictions. And by the way, those convictions need to be biblical convictions, not man-made convictions, because then you're delving into legalism. So these are all the ways that you can stand against evil. Okay, Stand against evil. Resist the tide. Swim upstream. Go against the grain. As they say, If you're not willing to stand for something, you will fall for anything, right? And also, as they say, it's been said, what does it take for an evil, uh, for a society to be overcome with evil? And that's simply all it takes is for good people to do nothing, right? It's a subtle takeover. That is exactly what happened in Europe. Think about it. In the 1500s with Martin Luther, the great reformer, who transformed an entire nation, if not a hemisphere, for God and the Scripture... In Germany, and then in the 1900s, we have Adolf Hitler taking over that same Germany slowly, little by little, subtly, year over the course of 25-year period. How did Hitler accomplish that? Well, you had a whole bunch of good people who did absolutely nothing. For the most part, there were a few. They got exiled or executed. But for the most part, you had a whole bunch of good people who did nothing and said nothing. They did not stand. So, Christians, you need to stand against evil. Probably one of the greatest examples of humans doing that would be in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, where King Nebuchadnezzar, the the Saddam Hussein of that time, who built that 90-foot golden statue, demanded, made a law that everybody bow down to that statue, and three righteous Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Shadrach and Benny, refused to stand. So they literally took a stand, didn't they? They took a stand because they didn't follow the decree which was not just bow to the idol, it was lay down and worship the idol. They didn't do it. And it almost cost them their life by being thrown in the fiery furnace, but God preserved them. So you need to take a stand against evil. That's where it starts. We need to do that. Let's go on to point number two that Paul emphasizes. That's the second part of verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. So, in other words, take a stand. And then he goes on and says, But instead, even expose them. Expose them. This is the key phrase in this passage. The key verb or word is the word expose. It's a very specific Greek word used 17 times in the New Testament, many times by the Apostle Paul. Alego. Alego. Lego. It comes from speak. To speak. So it has a verbal component to it. And Paul says, Christian, you need to expose them. Expose unfruitful, sinful deeds wherever you go. So like I said, it was used 17 times. And just in looking at all those 17 different passages in the New Testament and how they're used many times by the Apostle Paul, here's what that word expose means or how it's used. It means to bring to light. Like with that flashlight, That's an exposing element. Uh, So to expose, to bring to light, to reveal hidden things, dirty deeds done in secret, in other words. Uh, To convince, also to reprove, to correct. There's that verbal component or verbal element. To punish, it's used that way. To discipline, to chasten. These are all the nuances of that one word and what it means, depending upon the context. So to summarize, there's two main components to this word expose that Christians are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be exposing evil things. The two main components are to expose and then to rebuke. That's what we do with sin, wherever we see it. And by the way, it's outside the church and inside the church. That's what Jesus did. That's what the Apostle Paul did. Did you know that the Apostle Paul, he exposed sin verbally, verbally, openly, blatantly, inside the church, compromise? Believe me, there's plenty of sin to expose and rebuke in the church, isn't there? Because the church is filled with what? Sinners! Saved sinners, and then also some unsaved sinners, some of which might call themselves Christians, have crept in. So as a result, we got sin going on all the time in the church. And many times in the church especially, it's done in secret, isn't it? Because sin is not supposed to be allowed or tolerated in the church, and therefore many times it is hidden and in secret. That's why the command here, expose it. And by the way, I think Paul is primarily talking about sin that is done among professing Christians in the church. And the reason I say that is if you look at this word used by the Apostle Paul throughout the rest of the New Testament, how he uses it, most of the time he's talking to Christians. And I want to look at a couple of examples. Uh, look at, go to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 5. We're going to look at Just three passages, 1 Timothy 5 and then also in Titus. And Paul is talking to Timothy who was a pastor in the church at Ephesus. He was a pastor at the church in Ephesus, the very same church we're talking to in Ephesians. And so he commands Timothy and then also in Titus. And he's talking about what the pastor and men of God and women of God are supposed to be doing in the local church. 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. This word expose is used. And look at how it's used and translated. 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about uh, elders who might be caught in sin in the local church. They need to be confronted. And then if there's a problem in terms of their attitude, then there needs to be some consequences. Because they're leaders in the church, so therefore there's a higher standard of accountability for them. So there's great severity of consequences. Look at verse 20 of chapter 5, verse Timothy. Those who continue in sin... So an elder has been confronted of sin. He refuses to listen. He has hardened his heart. If he continues in sin, then rebuke that elder in the presence of all, in front of the whole church. Wow, that's scary. And the word there for rebuke is the same word, expose. Expose that pastor, that elder, sin in front of the whole church. Wow. So this isn't just talking about pagans in the world. This is talking about sin going on in the church and at the highest level of leadership. Uh, flip over to Titus, just a couple uh, couple books over. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Again, you have Paul talking to a young pastor at a church inside the context of a church, and he's telling them what church leaders should do in the church. And he's talking about what elders and pastors need to be doing. That's the context here. And in verse 9, he says elders, pastors, overseers need to hold fast uh, the faithful Word of God. You need to handle the Scriptures accurately which is in accordance with the teaching, in order that the elder or pastor may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That same word, expose. It's the exact same word. Exhort in sound doctrine and refute or expose. In the church is where it goes on. Stay in Titus. Look at verse 13. Uh, This testimony is true for this cause. Reprove them. There it is again. Expose them. False teachers, lazy people, sinful people in the church. <clears throat> Reprove them how or expose them? Severely. These are drastic measures. Sin is not to be tolerated in the church. Undealt with. Reprove them, expose them severely in order that they may be sound in the faith. You want to bring them back to repentance and restoration and functioning healthy in the body. Expose them. And then one more in um, Titus. Look at Titus 2.15. Uh, Uh, Again, he's talking to Pastor Titus. Okay, Titus, all this stuff I just told you. These things speak and exhort. Be a good Bible teacher. Exhort. That means encourage the people. Compel them to obey. And also reprove them. Expose them with all authority. It's God's authority. God's delegated authority. It's part of the job of a pastor and leader in the church is to expose sin. Reprove sin. And like I said, this word is primarily, it has a verbal component. That means you need to talk to people verbally, face-to-face, about sin. Matthew 18 is the discipline passage. By the way, one of the distinctives of Grace Bible Fellowship, one of those is that we said we are committed to church discipline. That means dealing seriously with sin among believers in the church in a biblical manner following the procedure that Jesus delineated in Matthew 18. That's the biblical discipline passage. It starts at verse 15. There's four steps to it. It is systematic, and you need to do it systematically, and listen to it. And it's Jesus' process of exposing and dealing with sin. And it begins in Matthew 18 verse 15, step one. Jesus said, if your brother, notice it's your brother. This is in the believing community that we expose and oppose sin. If your brother sins, go and reprove him. There's that word again. Expose him. The NIV says, show him his fault which is an interesting translation, but literally the emphasis is on speak to him. Tell him the verbal component. If your brother is in sin and you know it, you need to go to him privately or her and talk to that person in a spirit of prayer. Patience. But you need to do it verbally. And all of a sudden you can see all kinds of Christians protesting. Why? Well... I don't like confrontation. That's the number one answer of why people don't do what Jesus said to do. I don't like confrontation. It sounds very spiritual and self-righteous. I hate confrontation. Who likes confrontation? You've got to be warped to like confront. I would imagine that maybe the Pharisees actually liked confrontation because they were so snub and self-righteous. But if you're a humble person and a biblical person and like Christ, you're not going to like confrontation. But that's not an excuse. Jesus said, go to that person privately and tell them, talk to them, reprove them, show them their fault. This needs to be going on regularly in the church. This is how you keep health in the church. Why do we have church splits all over the world, all the time, all throughout history? I think one of the main reasons is because there is a neglect of church discipline in the church. Just neglected, totally forgotten, there's a lot of ignorance on it, just not being practiced. This is a very healthy thing. This is just ongoing regular maintenance for the health of the church. And God will use that. God will heal, by the way. God will restore sinners. God will help people grow. He's the God of the second and third and the fourth and the fifth chance, isn't he? But that sin has got to be dealt with. It's got to be reproved. It's got to be exposed. So that's what we need to be in the business of doing. Keeping in mind, Jesus said to do this It's in in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that's point number two. Christians need to, I'm sorry, number two is Christians need to speak out against evil. Speak. The emphasis on telling, talking, saying. I don't care if you're afraid. I don't care if you're a sissy. I don't care if you don't like confrontation. I don't either. It's a matter of obedience and doing the right thing. And if you are timid and afraid and lack courage, that's where we've got to ask the Holy Spirit to help us, right? To make us courageous and give us a godly spirit in the confrontation. So let's go into point number three from the Apostle Paul. So number one was that Christians need to take a stand against evil. Number two, Christians need to speak out against evil. Number three, Christians need to use moral discretion when exposing evil. This is a good balance to what I just said. Moral discretion. Discretion means to be really careful. Be careful, be cautious, be prayerful, be systematic. Be deliberate, be guarded, be biblical, be patient. That's what I mean. Choose your words carefully, wisely, ahead of time, not spontaneously, in dealing with evil and exposing evil and confronting evil. Paul says in verse 12, look at the verse. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And this could apply to unbelievers out in the pagan world where Paul confronted pagans like that. But Paul confronted more often Sins done in the church. And like I said, many of the sins that are done in the church, they are disgraceful. That's what Paul says here. Because they're being done in secret. The reason they're being done in secret is because they are so alarming and shameful. But they need to be exposed. He says, for it is disgraceful. So when you're exposing, man, here's the balance. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. In other words, Paul is saying, uh, we need to have some discretion here in dealing with sin within the church, especially when it is revealed and unveiled and how we communicate it to the rest of the body. We need to be careful for a couple of reasons when we're talking about somebody else's sin in the church. Number one, we need to protect the reputation of the sinning Christian, don't we? We can't crucify them to the cross because of their sin because Jesus was already crucified for the sinner. Right? So we need to protect the sinner and their reputation. There is forgiveness on their behalf. We need to protect them. Also, we also need to protect the body and the saints, especially when it comes to these disgraceful, despicable, shameful, unspeakable deeds that are done in secret. We don't need to divulge all the grisly details of sick sin that's done behind closed doors and pollute the minds of the saints and put vivid images in the minds of believers because that will create temptation and it will even cause believers to sin and to stumble, won't it? Because our minds and our imagination is a very, it's a gift from God that can be easily polluted from imagery and even just words that are spoken. So we need to be very careful in doing that. I remember a conference I went to probably 15 years ago. It was a biblical conference and there was a guy who was a Christian or some kind of counselor and he's talking to the congregation of 300 people and I was one of them and he was talking about some sin that was unearthed in a little conference he had with some Christian that supposedly was supposed to be confidential, then why in the world are you telling 500 people at your conference? But anyway, and then he just went into all these graphic, gory details of the sin, and I was thinking, I didn't need to hear that. That was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I still remember it. It still pollutes my mind. That's not using discretion, so we need to use discretion. You know, the Apostle Paul did this in Corinthians. He talked to the Corinthians. He confronted a guy in the Corinthian church who was a Christian, who was involved in an immoral relationship. And all he said, he pointed it out, and the only thing he said, and he used great discretion, and all he said was, I can't believe it, but there is among you a man who has his mother's wife, dot, dot, dot. He didn't need to go into gory detail. Everybody knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about adultery and incest, and he didn't even use those words. All he used is the, word, the verb has. That's an excellent example for us. He's using euphemisms to protect people's minds and also to protect the sanctity of of marriage and other things. And we need to follow that example using discretion when we do deal with sin. Another reason we need to use discretion in confronting people's sin is I want to just read Galatians 6. If if you can flip there, this is a great reminder in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. And I did say that nobody should like confrontation, but I would say there are some Christians who have the gift of confronting people. Wouldn't you say that? Or they're just, it seems to come more naturally to them. And many times that's a good thing. They're just able to do that by God's giftedness that He's given them. But even those people need to be particularly careful in confronting another believer in sin. And Paul reminds us of that. Galatians 6 1 and 2. Listen to this. Brethren, believers, If somebody in your church, if a believer, if a man is caught in a sin, if they're caught in a sin and they've been exposed, now you've got to talk to them. Um, He says, if a man has been caught in any trespass, you, Christian, who are spiritual, you're a mature Christian, restore that sinner, that Christian, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. See that? That's humility, doing it Christ-like. Now, look at this. Here's the caution. Each one of you looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted. See, there's the discretion. You can't just run into it. You have got to be guarded. You've got to protect yourself. Satan wants to get involved. Anytime there's sin involved, he wants to get involved and just mess it all up and get everybody dirty and polluted. So we've got to use discretion in dealing with sin in the church. Uh, Let's go on to number four, what Paul says in verse 13, and that is Christians need to use the searchlight of Scripture to expose evil. So when we expose sin, reprove sin, rebuke sin. How do we do it? What's our tool? What's the standard of authority by which we decide and determine that something is sinful? That's Scripture. Uh, 5.13, Paul says, "For um, oops, going back to Ephesians. Scripture. God's truth is frequently called light. We expose darkness with light, don't we? So verse 13 says, but all things become visible. They are exposed when they are what? Exposed to the... Light. Exposed by the light. And the light is truth. The light is Scripture. The light comes from God. Jesus is the light. So we expose sin and darkness with the truth primarily of God's written Word. This is our standard. This is our flashlight. You don't have bullets. You don't have a gun. You don't have a squad car. You have the Word of God. Here is your searchlight of the Scriptures to expose all darkness. Everything you need, it's sufficient. It's right here. That's Sam read from Psalm 119. If you go a little further in Psalm 119... Uh, verse 105, it says uh, the psalmist says, "Your word is a lamp. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path." So the word of God is a lamp. It is a light. It guides the way and it also exposes. So that's what we use. We don't just make it up on our own. We don't use our own authority, our own human standards. That's legalism. We use the word of God to expose sin. But specifically, look at and that's uh, again the word expose. That specific word is used in 2 Timothy 3:16 which is the famous verse on the inspiration of Scripture. What is the Bible for? Well, it's got many purposes and by way of reminder, listen to the purposes of Scripture. All Scripture, Genesis through Revelation, is inspired by God. It is breathed out by God. These are God's words, not human words. All Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. It is to be used for the following. What do we use the Bible for? For teaching. Right? Teaching for reproof and correction. That's... Consistent with what this is. Expose. Oppose and expose using the Bible. We use the Bible to reprove, to correct, to rebuke. It's also used for training in righteousness. So you've got two positive things, two negative things there. So not human opinion or my preferences, but the objective truth of the light of God's Word is how we expose darkness in the world. And the prerequisite to doing that is you've got to know the Word of God, don't you? You have got to know the standard before you can expose that which is false. Examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. Examine everything in light of the Scripture, but you better know what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? It's not so much, what would Jesus do? Because you know what? We really don't know what Jesus would do. As a matter of fact, if Jesus came here, was hanging out with us, spent a day with us, we would probably be very surprised at many things Jesus would do. And we'd probably even be more surprised at things Jesus would say. Jesus, that hurt my feelings. You stepped on my toes. How dare you call me... Foolish and slow of heart to believe. Well, that's what he said all the time to his 12 apostles. So it's not what would Jesus do, because frankly, we don't know what Jesus would do. It's what did Jesus do and what did Jesus say? It's right here. That's the objective standard. So that's number four. Christians need to use the searchlight of Scripture to expose evil. And then finally, number five is verse 14. Christians need to live with a sense of urgency regarding evil. Dealing with sin in the church was a very important thing to Paul. It was a serious thing to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a church planter. He planted nearly up to 15, 20 churches that we know of in the New Testament. He planted the church at Ephesus. And he was there in Ephesus for three years. He shared the gospel, saw people come to Christ, got a group together. Taught in the scriptures, was there for three years, trained up leadership in that church, established that church, and left. And after a five year period, he heard all kinds of sin and false teachers had crept into the church that he started and that he pastored. And he was mad. And he says, You know what? You need to clean house. You need to expose the sin and the compromise going in the church. Some people believe that we're not supposed to confront other believers or expose sin in the church. Well, at least they're saved. No, it's a direct command from Scripture. We need to hold each other accountable and expose sin when we find it. Especially and primarily in the church. And you know what? Christians need to wake up. we got too many Christians that are apathetic on this issue. They are asleep. They are lazy. They are passive. They are indifferent. They are cold. They are dry. They don't care. That was Paul's attitude because that's why he says, look at verse 14. We know Paul thinks this because he says this. Verse 14, regarding all this. For this reason it says... People believe, scholars believe, that Paul was either quoting or alluding to a couple of Old Testament passages maybe in Isaiah or, more likely, an early Christian hymn that was recited, memorized, and practiced in the early church. And he quotes it. In light of the sense of urgency at dealing with sin and taking it seriously in the church, Paul says, awake, sleeper! Who is he talking to? I think he's talking to Christians. Um, and if you read commentaries, you're going to get two sides. Some commentators say, oh, this is talking to unbelievers. They need to wake up to salvation. I don't think the context, context is talking about that. It's possible. I do believe the truth is, applies. If you are not saved, you're an unbeliever, you are asleep. As a matter of fact, no, you're worse than asleep. You are spiritually dead, aren't you? That's Ephesians 2.1. And you can't wake up a dead person. It's only the Holy Spirit that can bring them back to life. But this is wake up, sleeper. Wake up, you and uh, you sleeping Christian. You la- not lazy, but uh, just kind of in the doldrums and passive and foggy headed and unclear and without enthusiasm, without uh, direction. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So like I said, this can apply to either believers or unbelievers, but many times in the New Testament, this very thing is said to Christians. Um, let me give you a couple. First Peter five. Verse 8. Here's the Apostle Peter. He's talking to Christians. He says the same thing. He says, Be of sober spirit, says the New American Standard. Some translations literally, Wake up! He's trying to jolt them and shake them. Wake up, Christian. Get a clue. Look up. Get, wake up and smell the coffee. See what's going on around you. Be of sober spirit. Greg, as is the Greek word. Gregory! Name, do we have any Gregories here? No Gregories. Oh, we have a Gregory. Middle name, Gregory. That means to be awake, to be alert, to be active. Is that true of Andrew? No. Matthew, yeah. Active, awake, alert, perceptive, watching, on guard. Wake up, be Gregory. So he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, watch out. Why? Here's the reality. Your adversary, your enemy. He personalized it. Your adversary, your enemy. I don't have any enemies. I'm a nice person. No, you have enemies. Your adversary, the enemy, the devil. Satan is your enemy if you're a Christian. That's kind of an amazing or overwhelming thought. The day you became a Christian, you know what? You made a lot of enemies. Uh, The world became your enemy. Sin became your enemy. Self became your enemy. Hell became your enemy. Death became your enemy. The unbelieving world became your enemy. Temptation became your enemy. And Satan became your enemy and all of his angels. You did not win friends the day you got saved. Your enemy, be on the alert, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around, present tense. He is alive. Satan is alive and well on planet earth. A book was written to remind us of that. He doesn't sleep or slumber. Your adversary, the devil, roams around like a vicious roaring lion, a satanic supernatural lion, by the way, and an invisible one, which is quite scary to me, roams around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, particularly Christians to rip them to shreds, to create division in the church, to create deception and blindness, and to create a tolerance for sin in the church which will pollute the church, pollute Christians, and worst of all, distort the image of Jesus Christ that we are supposed to be communicating to an unsaved world. Because we're the only Christ that the world literally is going to see right now until Jesus comes. So wake up, Christians. Peter said it. And then I want to close with this. Look at Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus says the same thing. It's the same truth. Wake up, believers. Wake up, church. Wake up, Christians. And this is Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Jesus addresses seven churches that existed at that time in Asia Minor. Probably every one of these churches was planted by an apostle, maybe John and the apostle Paul, because Paul worked in that area. They're now all about 40 years old, so they've grown over time. They've become somewhat institutionalized and mechanical. False teaching and false practices have crept in subtly over time in the church. Two of them got real bad. And this one's pretty bad. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Look at how bad this is. a church. This is professing Christians. This was the church at Sardis. Started out as a good church. And to the angel or to the messenger of the church. And by the way, these are red letters in my Bible, which is me. This is the Lord Jesus talking to His church. What would Jesus do? This is what He might do. This is what He might say. Hopefully He wouldn't say it to Grace Bible Fellowship to the church at Sardis. Jesus says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. He's talking about himself, the Lord Jesus, the majestic risen one. I know your deeds, church, that you have a name, you exist, you have a banner at your church, you have a building, you have a name that you are alive, but you know what? You are dead. Apathetic, spiritually speaking. Verse 2, look at this. Wake up! It's the same thing, same phrase. Wake up, Christian. Wake up, church. Strengthen the things that remain. Which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, keep it, and repent. That's what the church needs to hear today. A dead, dying, I mean, apathetic church, wherever it is, or apathetic Christians, we need ongoing, constant reminders to be spiritually awakened, spiritually reminded of the spirit. We are not in a fight, are we? And we're not even in a battle, we are at war. We have a spiritual war. Long before the war on terror was going on, there was the spiritual war of the church versus Satan. We're in a war. Wake up, Christian. Take it seriously. So that's how Paul concludes. Christians need to live with a sense of urgency regarding evil. And you know what? If we obey that command or that exhortation to take sin seriously, to take the war seriously, to wake up, to be sober, to depend on Christ... To be willing to roll up the sleeves and engage in spiritual battle on behalf of Christ, there's a promise at the end of verse 14. That the light of Christ will shine upon you. And again, like I said, the safest place in the world is in the realm of obedience. Under the umbrella of God's sovereign protection. What a great and blessed truth. Well, with that, let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer and just ask Him to you know, apply these things in a real way to our heart that we'll live these out practically. Father, we thank You for our time of fellowship today. Thank You for these. They're really sobering reminders out of Your Word from the Apostle Paul, but ultimately we know, God, they came from the Holy Spirit who inspired this truth. God, I pray that You would help the believers at Grace Bible Fellowship and us as a church, us as a leadership, to take a stand against evil to expose evil, especially in our midst, to do it with discretion, prayer, humility, to do it in light of the Word of God, consistent with your truth, and also to have a sense of urgency in pursuing these things. And we know as a result, God, you're going to bless us for our obedience. And uh, we thank you for that. And God, now as we enter into the Lord's table, thank you again for the privilege to be reminded that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven. So we give him the glory and praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.